Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is author, musician, and music technologist Craig Anderton. First of all, the Music Modernization Act passed last week. Hooray, hooray. There were some questions whether it would happen or not. But first of all, what is the Music Modernization Act? Well, there's actually three parts to it. The first one is the Music Modernization Act itself, and that streamlines music licensing. Makes it easier for rights holders to get paid. That's always a good thing. The second part of it is the Classics Act. That means artists with songs that were recorded before 1972 will now get paid. Believe it or not, they weren't getting paid prior to this. And then finally, the AMP Act. That means allocations for music producers. For the first time, producers and engineers will get paid for satellite and online radio streams. All very cool. The problem was no one was sure whether it was going to pass or not. A few months ago, it flew right through the House unanimously, no problems. And then it got to the Senate. And most senators were for it, 82. But in order to really speed this through so it was going to get through this Congress, it needed 100% of the senators, needed all of them. And At the end, there were a couple that had their reservations, and mostly because of Sirius XM. Now, Sirius, in fact, were the ones that would be hurt the most from the Classics Act, from the pre-1972 music, and they managed to get a couple of senators on their side. So prior to that, 150 major artists, Paul McCartney, Taylor Swift, Pink, etc., threatened to boycott Sirius should the Music Modernization Act not pass. Well, there were some compromises made at the very, very last hour, and what ended up happening was Sirius basically got rate certainty through 2027. So 15.5% of the revenue that Sirius XM takes in goes out to labels and artists. That's a good thing, but it's not going to change here until 2027. The other thing was they demanded that Any money that they're going to pay for pre-1972 recordings must be split 50-50 between labels and artists. That's a good thing, basically. Otherwise, labels would take it and the artists wouldn't see that much. So this ended up passing. It needed to pass. And the reason why is if it didn't at this point, it was dead and would have to be reintroduced next year in the next Congress, and they'd have to start all over again with this. So really, this was the best chance to make it happen. It's still not over yet, because even though it passed the Senate, there are some changes in the legislation, so it has to go back to the House for them to basically reaffirm it, then the president has to sign it. But it looks like there shouldn't be any problem in either of these things, and the Music Modernization Act will become law very soon. That's a good thing for all musicians and artists and record labels. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and was the number one bestseller on the Amazon Music Business Books chart. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Now, there's another law that will have an effect on how much money you pay for gear. 
It's a case that went in front of the Supreme Court called Wayfarer versus South Dakota. And basically what it does is allows sales tax on out-of-state transactions. What that means is if you buy something online, you're going to get charged for sales tax, even if the entity that you purchased the gear from is not in your state. Now, one of the things that people wanted to do is kind of avoid paying sales tax, and that's why they went online, but that's not going to be an advantage any longer. And really, that's a boon to brick-and-mortar stores everywhere. That being said, this is going to wind up costing you more money when you buy gear. The reason why is 47 out of 50 states have sales tax. The problem is they have different tax rates. And to make it worse... Within each state, there are different tax rates, depending on the different cities and localities. For instance, there are 11,000 tax jurisdictions in the United States. Texas has 1,500 alone. New York only has 56. But what that means is now an online retailer will have to get software that will be able to determine how much sales tax comes from where you are when you bought it and this is going to be expensive. Now, a big online sales entity like Sweetwater or eBay, they won't have a problem with this. They'll be able to absorb it even though they'll pass it along. But for small businesses, this is going to be a nightmare. And in fact, you're going to find a lot of small businesses that will have difficulty doing business online anymore because of it. But that being said, prepare to spend more because of this particular Supreme Court decision. My guest this week is Craig Anderton, who is an icon in the music industry known to musicians everywhere for his extraordinarily helpful articles in magazines like Guitar Player, Keyboard, Sound on Sound, Electronic Musician, Pro Sound News, Mix, and many, many others. He's also the author of more than 35 books, including his highly influential electronic projects for musicians, which touched off the do-it-yourself revolution among musicians who are inspired to pick up a soldering iron and fashion their own versions of Craig's highly useful projects. Sometimes overlooked is the fact that Craig has been a lifelong musician, appearing on Swiss TV when he was nine years old, touring and recording with the group Mandrake in the 60s, doing session work in the 70s, and more recently, playing with the German electronic group Reisdorf Force. He's still recording and has released a number of albums in recent years as well, including his latest titled Simplicity. During the interview, we talked about his time at Gibson and some of the things that the company actually got right, his insights into Cakewalk and Sonar, his recent book and album releases, and the latest trends in music gear. We spoke via Skype from his home in Nashville. I want to go back to the beginning for when you started in the business, and I know that you started really young, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> really young. I mean, I don't know if you want details, but I think it was like nine years old, eight or nine years old when I appeared on Swiss television as part of a school thing. And then I did my first, when I got back to the United States, I did my first uh, paying concert when I was 12 as part of a band. And then things just went rapidly downhill from there. You know, I went to college and uh, dropped out after a year to join in a band. And in theory, I'm still on leave of absence from the University of Pennsylvania. And in terms of the writing, I was first published when I was 16 as a guest editorial in a, in a magazine. So I've been doing both music and, and writing for a long time. Did you grow up in Switzerland? No, I spent my three and a half years, something like that, in, in Geneva. So that's why I speak French and uh, relate to Europe really well. I, I really loved it over there. Uh, I get it. I get it. So when you came back, where did you land? Uh, I was living in northern New Jersey, 
And um, then when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, I was in Philadelphia for my rock and roll years with with Mandrake, uh, Mandrake Memorial. And uh, after that, I ended up doing a fair amount of studio work in New York and then uh, moved out to California and got involved in a string of new age, quote unquote, production uh, projects and uh, also uh, quite a few classical projects over the years. So it's been a, you know, it's been a pretty varied mixed bag of stuff. I remember Mandrake because I grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Although about an hour and a half outside of Philly in Pottsville. And I can remember looking at the Philly papers and seeing when Mandrake was playing all the time. Although I've, I never heard the band, but I remember seeing it frequently. So I know you guys played it a lot. Yeah, that was during my 200 uh, days out of the year touring and playing days. We were a house band in Philadelphia, so that was a guaranteed gig. But then we also played pretty much every place on the East Coast and uh, did a Midwest college tour, played the South. Ne never made it out to uh, the West, but we were pretty much an East Coast thing. That, remember, that was back in the days when you could be a local band and achieve a fair amount of notoriety and actually make a, a decent living. I mean, there were there was a Boston music scene and a Detroit music scene and Philadelphia and, you know, all that. So it, it, it was kind of different times and it was it was a lot of fun. I did the same thing. Exactly the same thing with the band out of Pottsville that toured up and down the East Coast and had a couple of album deals and, you know, never got past Pittsburgh <laughs> or or maybe Ohio <laughs> somewhere. That was about the limit here, but up and down the coast. So, yeah. And again, going through the 300 nights a year and begging for a day off and, you know, making really good money for the time playing in clubs. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, that's a... That's one of the drawbacks to today's music scene, it's harder to, for people coming up to find places to play. There, there are just fewer venues and uh, people, you know, spend a lot more time watching Netflix at home, sitting on a couch. So it's a, again, it's, it's a different sort of world. I'm not sure how it's all going to resolve, but we'll, we'll find out. Well, I think like anything else, you know, it cycles around, but we just have to stay in long enough for the cycle to come about. It'll probably be too late for us, unfortunately, when it comes around again, but uh, it'll be nice to see if it does. Yeah, I mean, who who knows who knows what's going to be successful. I, I've been thinking of putting together just a little a little act where I live now, and I was going to call it the the Deadful Great, and it was going to be impressions of people who aren't around anymore, like the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly and stuff like that. Because one little known fact about me is I can do impressions, so uh, I would thought that would be a fun thing to book a Halloween gig and and do a set with that. And, uh, but, you know, aside from that, I, I did play quite a bit, uh, live over in Europe in the early two thousands and the late part, latter part of the 20th century, uh, with Reisdorf Force and Air Liquide and, you know, sort of German experimental things, which was a lot of fun, but haven't really done much live playing since then. I still do a lot of recording though. So, um, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that's fun. And I do, I, I also do a lot of mastering. I just finished mastering the uh, album for Brian Ferry's guitar player. Um, and, uh, really, really good stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's, that's still a part of my life. And of course I'm doing uh, video projects and things like that for companies. So everything that I've learned is still useful, still relevant. And, uh, I'm still able to make a living at it. So for that, I'm very thankful to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, good. I want to come back to that in a second. But first of all, let's go back to the early days. You were noted for some of your great books on electronics. And the one I'm thinking of is Electronic 
projects for musicians. Where did you get your electronic chops? Um, well, gee, that's interesting. Um, I never had enough money when I was a kid growing up to like buy effects and stuff like that. So I'd go around on trash days when people left their TVs out, you know, and had, and I would like cannibalize parts from them. So that's, that's how I got my, my parts stash. This was when I was like in my early teens. And I, of course I read popular electronics and things like that. So I got into, uh, you know, experimenting with electronics. I did a ham radio operator thing. Uh, I was into that. So I, I knew enough electronics to, to use power tubes, which is coming useful again. And um, then in terms of learning electronics, uh, back in those days, companies were more than happy to make data sheets and send you samples. So I'd say something like, hey, I'm going to write an article for popular electronics. Can you provide, can you provide me with data sheets and a sample? And... Um, so that's that's how I got into it. I also did. Uh, I had an ad agency for a while. It was a uh, it was specialized in in like Silicon Valley startups, computer companies. This was back in the uh, mid seventies. And at Godbout Godbout Electronics, uh, the guy, the main guy in charge, Bill Godbout, was very knowledgeable about electronics, and I would pick his brain. But a lot of it was just um, trying things out and and you know blowing them up and seeing what would happen. And some of the parts, of course, got used in sort of unconventional ways. So, like, I used uh, tel uh, telephony uh, components to make vocoders and things like that. So I wasn't really too constrained by having to think normally. Um, yeah, I've, In fact, one of the more popular things that I did uh, that's all over the net is I did a, a project called the Tube Sound Fuzz. And that was based on using CMOS logic chips entirely <laughs> incorrectly. But it turned out you could make them sound kind of like tubes. And uh, so that, so it's pretty much self-taught, you know? Okay, so then you started to make devices for yourself, and then how did it expand from there? Well, um, when there were times when I wasn't on the road with Mandrake, uh, like instead of doing what I was supposed to do and, and uh, snorting coke and paying for hookers and things like that, instead I put my money into a, into a lab. I got a nice Tektronix scope, and... Um, did a lot of experimenting, uh, building instruments. Like I, I built a synthesizer in 19, the first synthesizer I built was in 1968. Again, I couldn't afford something like a Moog series three, you know, but I knew what they were and I put together oscillators and was able to do that. And then, um, I also, uh, in 1970, I did a programmable drum machine, which sounds a lot hipper than it was because you programmed it with switches. <laughs> you couldn't wow. really, I mean, we didn't have like microprocessors and stuff. You could program the beats with switches. But what really got the electronics career going was actually a mistake. This is, this is always fun. Um, I had been writing for popular electronics for quite some time. And then they changed editors and decided they didn't want music projects anymore. And that was back in the days when magazines actually paid money. I think you're old enough to remember that as well. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah. And I mean, I was, I mean, I was making really good money writing these articles and all of a sudden that went away. So I was at a newsstand looking for possible places I could put articles. And I saw this magazine called guitar player and that was, it was still pretty new at that point. And I approached them about doing a headphone amp. And I said, you know, this would be great. Preserve the peace with people. They can practice their guitar without, you know, getting people angry or having the police call for noise or whatever. And they were terrified of doing it because they didn't want people to electrocute themselves. They had apparently run a, an amp mod 
at one point where they got into trouble. And I said, no, no, this is not like an amp. It doesn't use tubes. It just uses nine volt batteries. It's not a problem. And they're like, well, I don't know. They're, I mean, they were really, they're really quite terrified, but they sent the circuit to Alembic and Alembic said, yeah, this is fine. So I think just to get me off their back, they, um, they decided to, to publish the article. And I said, well, I'll provide the schematic. And they said, oh, no, we have our own art department. We have our own look. And so we want to do the schematic. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like, you know, you get a connection wrong and it won't work. Well, they did the schematic and it turned out there was an error and the thing could not work no matter what you did. So they got like, I think it was over 300 letters. This was before the days of email. They got 300 letters from people that ranged from you know, I'm just a kid putting this thing together and it doesn't work to hi, I'm a semiconductor engineer at National Semiconductor and there's an error in the schematic or whatever. So they decided that there, there was actual interest in this stuff. And so then I did another project for them, a treble booster, and that went over really well. So then they came to me and said, hey, you want to write a book of projects? Well, I'd never, you know, written a book before, so I had no idea what the process was like. But the way I've gotten where I am in life is by always saying yes. I'm sure you know that one, too. And um, so I said, yeah, I'll do a book. And I had no idea how to do a book. So about a month later, they called me up and said, uh, so how's the book going? Uh, well, uh, yeah, okay. It's, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, it's, it's, I'm working on it. Uh, oh, can you send us an outline? And all of a sudden, this light bulb switched on over my head. An outline. So that's how you do it, you know? Yeah. And uh, at the time, I had a 1966 Volkswagen, and I knew nothing about cars, but I bought this book called The Idiot's Guide, you know, How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive. And it was really a guide on how to keep, on how to make cars work for a complete idiot. And I certainly qualified as that. And I basically saw how it was laid out. You know, first they talked about, the terms, and then they talked about the tools and the procedures and the testing and that kind of stuff. And I thought, my gosh, this is exactly how an electronic projects book would work. So I did an outline along those lines, came up with the projects, um, guitar player books published it, and it became really successful. And and yeah, you're right, it's it, it was pretty influential. I mean, I'm always surprised when I go to a NAMM show and there are these you know, boutique effects companies or Digidesign or whoever, oh yeah, I got started with your book. And of course, I always apologize for um, keeping them out of a high-paying job in the defense industry. But you know, it's uh, it did it did well, and that led to home recording for musicians. And you know, the the, the rest is, uh, as they say, hysterical. So that's how the book that's how the, the book thing started. And the projects I actually started getting some pretty decent analog electronic chops together. I mean, I uh, again, companies were willing to educate you. I poured over these data books and. Uh, cookbooks and, and application notes and things like that. And it's pretty, you know, it's like any discipline. Once you get into it, the, the more you practice at it, the more you test things out, the better you get at it. So these days, actually, I'm not doing much electronics because I'm doing it all in software hmm. and, uh, you know, doing digital, you know, playing with playing with software type things. So that's a, but it's still a do it yourself world, you know? You know, what's interesting is that that was so big for a while. Do-it-yourself electronics and, and projects, and you can buy kits. And I'm sure you remember Heath Kit, for instance. And all of a sudden, that went away. I talked to companies that had issued kits and said, well, you know, the liability issue is really a big deal, so we had to stop. And now it seems like that's coming back where there's a whole new do-it-yourself sector of the business for audio gear it's amazing and it's good gear too you buy it and, and put it together and it sounds pretty good so that's a positive development and it warms my heart i have to say 
Yeah, I'd like to get back into doing hardware. Um, a lot of people have thought, you know, I'd love to revise electronic projects, although the fact of the matter is that it's still, all those projects still work. You just have to substitute different ICs. But, uh, you know, they still do their thing. A lot of companies, in fact, there are a lot of my projects are out there in the world. They've been appropriated by companies uh, using my designs. And the, the stuff is still relevant, you know. But I decided to instead get into attack more with the home recording book thing right now. So it, the electronics is on, is on the shelf for a bit. But I, I plan to get back to it eventually. Okay, so you've done a lot of books, right? 25, 26, something like that? I counted them up recently, and I think it's like 30. It's over 35. It's like 36 or something like that. Which means you've been fairly prolific doing this. And I've done not quite as many, but almost. And I know that it takes a good amount of time, and there's a certain amount of brain cells that die, even though you get good at it after a while. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if it happened to you, but this is what happened to me, and I think it's pretty common, where you do that first book and you go, I'm never going to do that again. I say that after every book. So. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're lucky enough, it sells enough that people keep on asking you to do another one and another one and another one, and it gets easier after that, where then, you know, you don't think about it as much. But that first book is really the toughest one. You go, oh, I don't know. I got to tell you, Bobby, the, the, for me, the, the, mo- the, mo- the most recent ones are the toughest. Uh, each book is tougher than the last one because um, I'm trying to hone my craft. You know, I'm trying to make each book better. I'm trying to make each book have better illustrations. I'm, I'm doing more edits to like, I just, okay. Like I'm, I've been contracted to do 11 books in this home recording series for Hal Leonard. And I just finished book number seven, uh, the day before yesterday. And it's on audio basics for musicians. And I'm talking about decibels and signal to noise ratio and, and intermodulation distortion and binary math and all this stuff. And it's like, how can I make this not only understandable, but interesting, Mm. you know, and that's, it really took a lot of edits on this book. And the other thing is I had to really structure it differently. Um, so I, the, the main narrative of the book is fairly basic and understandable and illustrations and things like that. But then I also have a lot of what I call tech talk sidebars. And these go into the weeds for people who want to know more about things. Like it explains why uh, each bit does not really add 6 dB of resolution. It's a different figure than that. Or it it talks about some of the more esoteric things. And trying to corral all that stuff together or trying to write – well, I did a book about how to record vocals. Now, that was easier on one level, but there's so many facets to it these days. Uh, as a matter of fact, the reason the reason for doing a book series, I don't know if I, I think this is worth getting into, is because I always wanted to update home recording for musicians. Do you remember that book? Of it course, like yeah. Done in seventy. Yeah. Okay. So this was over forty years ago, and home recording for musicians meant you bought a Tascam four track, you either made a mixer or used like a Bogan PA mixer or something like that. And most, and most of the book was about how to bounce three tracks down to one and not have things sound horrible. Yeah. But that was all you could do. So home recording for musicians, that was, you could have a book that described everything and it did really well. And then I've always wanted to revise it, but everything is so fractured now. It's like, do you use Mac? Do you use windows? Do you use a, a hard disk recording system or do you use a standalone? Do you use one of those portable zoom things? Are you into beats? Are you into loops? Are you into straight ahead recording? Are you like an old rocker with a guitar? 
you know, um, and there's like so many more options, like just the number of mics that are available to people these days. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just a sure SM 57 anymore. You know, there's lots of inexpensive, high quality mics. There's different technologies. Ribbon mics are back. You have to be an IT professional to use most of the stuff. And the idea of being able to write a book about it was just impossible. It would have to be like, you know, 8,000 pages long. It would cost more to ship than it would to print. And so um, a friend of mine uh, who was my editor at Music Sales said, hey, you know, what you should do is like a time life library with like, uh, you know, different shorter books on different topics. And he suggested that years and years ago. And I, I never followed through. But I finally um, got together with Hal Leonard and discussed the idea of doing a series. And they were like totally behind it. So um, like the, the, the topics are fairly you know, fairly focused. Like there's one on how to apply equalization. There's one on recording vocals. There's one on how to get the best sounds out of amp sims. There's the audio basics one. There's a fairly long one about how to mix. Um, so those are the kind of, oh, there's another one, how to choose and use audio interfaces. So my, my thinking is that, for example, if someone has been working in a MIDI studio or doing video or whatever, and they need to mic drums, they can just get the book on miking drums. On the other hand, if they don't, you know, if they're getting started and they don't know what interface to get, they can choose an audio interface. So that's that's my current project, and um, it's it's pretty grueling to put together that many books. But um, and and every time I finish one, it's like, gosh, I you know, I just don't really want to do another one. But then I, you know, I look back at it and it's like, you know, that was a good book, and that I want to keep the series going. So that's what I'm really involved in now. One of the things I always find toughest. This always happens for me, and maybe you're smarter than I am. I hope you are, but I save the illustrations till the end. So I'll do all the copy, and I get to the end, and it's like, oh, okay, now I have to add illustrations or graphics or whatever. And then it's a race to the finish to get that together. For me, it's always the biggest hassle. Do you do that? No, I, well, half and half. I do the I do the graphics as I go along um, because... In a lot of, in the kind of books that I'm doing, a lot of times the picture is worth a thousand words. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I that's a, a very important part of the book. But what I will do is I'll decide what graphics I need and put in placeholders, and then like I'll I'll get out my camera and shoot like you know 15 shots at once or do diagrams. But then a lot of times uh, on this last book on the Audio Basics one, for example. Um, I was reading through the book. I thought everything was done. I thought I was reading my description of bit resolution and how that affected the signal. I thought, you know, this has to have a diagram. And I wanted to explain what DSD was. And I, well, this needs a diagram. So there were, there were things that I thought that I could get by without doing a diagram because the words were sufficient. But then I realized that they, that they really weren't. You know, now, now, one other thing about these books is these days, I harvest books more than write them in the sense that I own the rights to everything I've written since 1975 or something like that. Oh, good for you. So, um, yeah, no, that was a really important thing. And um, so when I was doing the Audio Basics one, I've written articles about the decibel. I've written articles about signal noise. I have screenshots of real-time analyzers showing things. So in the case of these home recording books, it, it it's a little bit better because I can – get my stuff and update it and add new screenshots or whatever. And all of a sudden I have a new book. And the other thing, by the way, about doing a series, and you'll appreciate this is that in terms of updating, um, 
like the microphone book, uh, which I did with Phil O'Keefe, that's coming out this month. And that's probably not going to have to be updated for like a year or two. They, they may even be able to do another print run before it needs to be updated. Whereas the audio interface book, as soon as that print run runs out, I'm going to need to do an updated version. But the beautiful thing about having a series like this is I don't have to do a massive update of a massive book and then it gets all done from scratch. It can be updated a piece at a time and that, that will keep it current. And I, and I have to say that Hal Leonard was really good about, um, in, in about specifying a short turnaround on these books. Um, I, I really kind of had to fight for that because I said, look, man, this is technology. We have to get these things out fast. And they totally understood that. Yeah, we can't, this isn't like publishing a Led Zeppelin songbook, you know, where you, where you can put it out 18 months later and, and, it, and that's fine. You know, so that's, that's another consideration. You know, I've tried to work on topics that were somewhat evergreen, but there's been a couple of times when I've kind of succumbed to pressure from a publisher and I've done books on gear or software. And right. inevitably, as soon as it's finished, there's something new that came out. And within a month or two or three, you know, it's obsolete. So then the call comes in, well, why don't you update this? And it's like, well, hey, I'm too down the road already. I can't even get this on my radar for a year. So I've found that, boy, I just don't want to do anything like that. And I get offers all the time, but it's like, uh, I don't know. Okay, well, here's the secret, Bobby. <laughs> no, it's um, I have a parallel track of books with Reverb.com that are PDFs that are sold as downloads. Huh. So I had like a, I had a book of sonar tips. It was called the Big Book of Sonar Tips. Yes. And this came this came across because I was doing a tip of the I was doing a tip of the week for for Cakewalk about sonar, and at some point it became like really unwieldy. I mean, there were like the post had I think it had like, gosh, it had like half a million views or something like that. I mean, it was this huge sprawling forum thread. It was never intended to be that. It was intended to be a tip of the day for one month. But then no one wanted it to stop, so I did this tip of the week. And I realized after a while, gosh, I have a whole book full of tips. So I put them together into this book called The Big Book of Sonar Tips and put it out, started a new thread with a whole new bunch of tips. And then when that reached critical mass, I combined that. Uh, I came up with another book called The Second Big Book of Sonar Tips. And then when uh, Cakewalk got, per got purchased by BandLab and they changed the program, I combined those two books updated them. And now there's the huge book of Cakework by Band Lab tips, but they've all been done as PDFs and they've all been done through reverb.com and updating them is just a case of like, okay, replace the screenshots and add a few things and talk to my contact at reverb and say, Hey, take out the old one, put in the new one. You know, it's uh, you can't do those things on paper anymore. You yeah. really can't. Well, I think for me, it's an attention span thing too. It's almost like, oh, I've been there, done that, and I'm, I'm done with it. I, you know, it's time to move on to something else. But I could see how that would work. Right, let's go to, to Sonar for a second, because I know you were a really big proponent of it, and then it died for a, a while. And then, thankfully, now it's, it's resurrected here. So what happened? Why did it die? Well, first of all, let me um, let me disabuse you of the notion that, I mean, I use lots of different programs. It's it. Sonar is the one that got the most attention because when I was working at Gibson, you know, they, they own Cakewalk. Hmm. And so, you know, that was a, it was a logical thing to do, but I've, I've used studio one, uh, live and sonar since version one of each program. And I use them for different things. 
Um, Studio One, I use I use the mastering page, but I also, uh, with some of the updates in, in version four, I've been using it a lot more for songwriting because of some of the instruments that they've added. Live is the ultimate program for live performance. I mean, that, that engine will not stop. The only way to get the audio engine to stop is if you take your laptop and drop it on a concrete floor from 10 feet, you know. Um, I mean, Live is just the most robust program ever, but it's not as deep as something like Sonar, and neither is Studio One. So, like, for any kind of narration work, audio for video things, soundtracks, um, uh, Sonar just always always gets the nod for me. And I've watched it develop over the years, and, you know, I've become fast with all three programs. I mean, I can, I can pilot a session in anything. I know how to use Pro Tools. I can use Logic or DP or, you know, whatever. But those are the three programs I've gravitated to because they don't have a lot of overlap. But Sonar was, uh, I thought, a very underrated program because it was Windows only. What happened with Sonar, um, you know, I really don't want to get into the politics of this situation because I had some really strong disagreements with the way it was being handled by uh, the people who were in, in cakewalk management for the last year or so. Um, but I thought they were making some very bad strategic moves. And, you know, who knows whether if they'd done what I suggested, whether it would have survived or not. Um, but all I know is that what they did do didn't allow it to survive. Yeah. So um, so there you have it, you know. And um, but it, it's it was too good a program to die. You know, it's one of those things that refused to die. And uh, BandLab picked it up. I'd actually tried to form a partnership with BandLab. That was one of the things that didn't happen that I was very upset about. But at least the seed was planted. And then when uh, Gibson decided to close down Cakewalk, uh, BandLab was interested in pursuing it. And it's actually. You know, when I think about it, it's really an ideal situation for BandLab because um, it's a social media music making type site and it's got their whole ecosystem and it's, you know, it's a very musician friendly thing and all that. Uh, but they didn't have anywhere. They didn't have anywhere for people to go once they got past that. You know, once once somebody got on BandLab and got proficient in making music and stuff like that, all BandLab could say was, well, Glad you had a good time. <laughs> Go find some other program and, you know, keep going. But now they actually have another solution. And the other thing that uh, BandLab is doing that I think is incredibly smart, and, and this was something that I had wanted to see as well, was they're giving the program away for free. And it's a very sophisticated, deep program. I mean, it even does DSD import and export. You can do that wow. for free. You can create loop libraries. For, I mean, in it, you can, it's an amazing program. But... It doesn't come with a lot of external, you know, plugins. Like the original Sonar Platinum came with a ton of plugins and content, things like that. Uh, the version that that's free now doesn't have those plugins, doesn't have those instruments, doesn't have that content. It has some. I mean, it has enough that you can do things, but you're not going to find sophisticated multi-band limiters and, and things like that. So they're not doing it yet, but I believe that what they're going to be doing in the future is they're going to adopt the model of the core program is free, but then there will be all these cool things that you that are optional at extra cost. So you can customize the program the way you want. And I think that that's going to be a, a I think that's going to be a good model for them. It, it's worked for Fruity Loops, um, you know, Error Image Line, I should say. And um, you know, it's well, it's, I mean, it's what Microsoft is doing really, you know, with their you know buy Office 365 and add it onto Windows 10 or whatever. And the other thing is, I think they can, I think they can. Uh, provide content for it too. This was another thing where, you know, the people at Cakewalk didn't really value content. And I kept pointing out that Native Instruments is really a content company 
and they're way bigger than any dog company, you know? Yeah. So, um, I think there's plenty of potential there. And I also think that, uh, you know, windows has had an interesting resurgence lately because, well, you know, it's been going on with the, uh, you know, with the Mac pros with the, with the desktop Macs. there really hasn't been any new technology, you know, in five years. I mean, if you go out and buy a Mac pro today, you're going to get five-year-old technology. Now that's going to supposedly change next year where Apple's going to completely revamp their desktops and do really powerful machines. And they're going to be modular and wonderful and all that. So I, I think that they'll, you know, they'll be able to hold on to a lot of the people that they have and, and get new users as well. But I've known a lot of uh, Apple enthusiasts who've gone over to windows in the last couple of years because they needed a new computer and they looked at what they could buy for, for the money with windows. And it was just way ahead and way newer and way faster, and the benchmarks were better than what you could do with anything that, that Apple had. And so that coupled with Windows 10, which is actually pretty cool, um, you know, it's put, it sort of put Microsoft back on the map again. Now, of course, they have a tendency to shoot themselves in the foot periodically, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, things like the uh, Surface Studio are, are really good machines. So I think that that also makes a Windows-only program like Cakewalk by BandLab, you know, formerly Sonar, or Samplitude, or some of those other programs, are more viable. You were with Gibson for four and a half years. And I'm curious because for someone who's been sort of an outsider from the standpoint that you're, a, you're an independent contractor, you work for yourself the whole time, and then all of a sudden, now you're working for a company. So what was the decision there? Because that's a big change. Well, I decided I should have at least one job before I die, you know? <laughs> I, I, I'd never gotten a W-2 in my life, you know? <laughs> I, I, I never had a job. Um, but the thing is, <clears throat> I had been consulting to Gibson. I'm, I'm sure you're aware. I mean, I consult to a zillion different companies. Uh, and, I, I spe- you know, over the years, I mean, literally from A to Z, you know, from Akai to Zeta. And uh, Gibson was one of the more interesting companies to work with. It was totally crazy, but very educational yeah, I think that it's going to be responsive. You know, it's going to be responsive to consumer demands. I, I, I'd hate to see the technology advances go away completely. I mean, things like the, well, for example, the cryogenically treated frets. I mean, that's an amazing thing. You can buy, you can buy a, a guitar with these cryogenically treated frets, and you're probably never going to need a fret job. You know, I mean, really? probably never. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. It's like. Um, yeah, because uh, in fact, there were some tests done. I, I'm not sure that I remember the exact numbers at the moment, but it was something like uh, they made a, a string bending machine, and the difference in wear between the cryogenically treated and the non-cryogenically treated was huge. I mean, it was like, like I don't know. I, I said I don't remember the numbers, but I did the math on you know if you bend a string like you know a thousand times in a night, <laughs> the guitar would you know you, you, it would be worn down fifteen percent in like forty years or something like that. I mean, it was amazing. It it doesn't make and it doesn't make the, the fret harder. It aligns uh, it aligns the metal in in sort of a way. It, it's the difference between say a laser and a flashlight. It's like a focused kind of metal, and uh, you know things like that, like the titanium bridge, which is like incredibly light. Um, I mean, it takes away the, 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 you know, it removes weight from the guitar. The other thing is, I mean, I get into, I get into lots of arguments with traditionalists. I mean, people are like really against rich light fingerboards, for example. Mm. Uh, it's like, oh, it's just paper, you know. But if you ask an honest-to-God luthier who makes their living by making guitars or fixing guitars or whatever, they'll tell you that rich light is a way better material. 
Um, and the other thing is that if you need a fret job, if you don't have cryogenically treated frets, you can take the frets out of a rich light fingerboard and not destroy it. You know, um, yeah. it's more stable. It doesn't have humidity issues. Uh, I mean, there's all these things, but you know, a lot of time, you know, musicians like to present themselves as these radical forward thinking people, but they're really very conservative. And I mean, I run into this all time, all the time with amp sims. Um, I, I, I stopped using guitar amps in 1968. I went to using uh, keyboard amps because they were flat response. And I got my sound in the, in the little boxes that I made. I got the sound that I wanted. And I've, I never looked back. I, I use guitar amps from time to time uh, for a special purpose in recording. But they don't, it, I mean, these days, even when I was doing my, my, power, my, my power duo thing with Brian from, from Public Enemy, and he was on drums and I was on guitar, uh, I used flat response systems, you know, and that's so predictable. I get the same sound whether I'm in the studio, whether I'm playing live, uh, it's, whether I'm going to a mixing console, it just doesn't matter. Now, there are things, but the problem is that people don't understand that amp sims, you just can't like dial up a preset and expect it to work because the preset was probably designed by somebody using different strings, a different guitar, different playing technique, different pickups, different pick, you know, playing a different genre of music. You need to actually know enough about an amp sim to like notch out the offending frequency at the output from the aliasing and restrict the frequencies going in and set the drive control right. But once you do that, as far as I'm concerned, I get a, the sound I get out of amp sims is 10 times better than what I can get out of a guitar amp. And it takes some work to get there. But to a lot of people, this is heresy. You know, oh, it's not tubes. Well, so what? You know, I, I mean, all that matters is what comes back to your ears. And, um, so I, you know, I, I mean, I, this is something that, that I, that I've always, that I've always sort of wondered about why, when the synthesizer first came out, people tried to make piano sounds, you know, it's like yeah. we have pianos, let's, let's do other things. So anyway, that's a long, that's a roundabout way of saying that I hope Gibson doesn't abandon the, the quest for technological improvements because I think some of them really were significant. Um, but on the other hand, I think that they're going to sell a lot of guitars by, getting back to basics yeah yeah you know what's interesting about amp sims I, I wasn't on a beta team but i was one of the ears for whatever the last box was i can't think of the name of it but it's doing really well the ramp sim box and they had a number of very well recorded sounds and then the amp sim and it was a blind test and after a while i could tell which was a sim and which wasn't that being said I preferred the sim every single time. It just sounded better, even though I knew it wasn't the real thing in terms of this was just recorded. Nonetheless, I preferred the sim. And then I go and I look and you start to see all of these major artists that are now going out with sims and not thinking twice of it. And like you say, it's mostly because they can get the same sound. It's repeatable. Every day, every venue, doesn't matter. And that's a bigger deal than people really think. It's underestimated. Let's put it like that. Well, you know, it's, I, I got two interesting things about Sims. One is that I've come up with a bunch of techniques for Sims that I, they're almost like, they're, they are almost to real amps as CGI is to the real world. I'm trying to come up with the idealized guitar sound. I'm trying to come up with a sound that's so smooth and so wonderful and so fantastic and something that doesn't exist in the real world. I want it to be like CGI. I'm using Sims to do multi-band distortion. I do a ton of multi-band distortion. Mm. And like I was 
playing with the helix and you know the, the, the line six helix has four parallel paths that's what i'm talking about the helix yeah okay so i took the helix and i took their amps and i made the multi-band amps and i sent a demo uh an audio demo to the guys at line six and i said this is what your helix can really do and they were blown away I mean, they were blown away because once you start doing multiband distortion, the intermodulation distortion goes away. You have this super clean sound. You can like remove some of the distortion from the higher band so that you get this clean sound ringing out these beefy power cords at the bottom. So, yeah, I mean, you listen to that, you know it's a sim. You know that's not a Vox AC30, but it sounds fantastic. And it's interesting what you said about the um, being able to tell the difference. I when Gibson came out with the FBX, which had onboard uh, electronics, so it could do different sounds. Uh, we were setting up a blind test with a bunch of musicians, and one of the guys from Gibson and I were playing. One of us was playing the, the real guitar, and the other was playing the FBX emulation. And it was my job at the time to get the emulation as close as possible to the guitar that was being emulated. So Frank would be playing the Telecaster, and I'd be playing the FBX, and the mus- and we'd say to the musicians, okay, which is the FBX and which is the Tele? And, st- and it would start off with them being able to pick the Tele 100% of the time. I mean, it was just like, oh, okay. So I'd tweak it a little bit more, and they'd go, well, I don't know, it's getting really close now. I don't know. It's, uh, hmm. And eventually get to the point where they're like, I don't know, man, it's really hard to tell the difference. And I'd say, okay, well, let me just do one more tweak here to see if we can make it definitive. So I would do another tweak. And the last tweak would be the sound of the telly you hear in your head or the sound of the strat you hear in your head or the Les Paul you hear in your head, not necessarily the one that comes out of the amplifier. And when I did that, people would say, people would hear the FBX and go, okay, well, you lost the recipe because now that really, now I can really tell that that's the Telecaster and the other one doesn't sound like, doesn't sound as good. Well, the other one was the Telecaster, you know? So there's a lot of subjectivity in all this. I mean, I also, you know, I came up with a software thing recently. I called an acoustifier. I wrote it up for guitar player. And what it does is it emphasizes the high frequencies when you pick strings, but only on the peaks. So it makes an electric guitar sounds more like an acoustic, the way an acoustic guitar responds. And when I tried this out with people, I would start off with it enabled. And people assumed it was bypassed. I didn't tell them it was bypassed or enabled. I just said, here, I want you to listen to an A-B comparison here. So they'd play the guitar, and the thing would be enabled. And then I would hit the switch and say, okay, now what do you think of this? And it would go to the bypassed version. And they would look at me like, are you crazy, man? This, <laughs> this sucks. Uh, this sucks. Why do, you, why, why do you think this sounds better? You know? <laughs> because they, And they thought that the processed one was the real one. So, you know, it's... It's all subjective, but yeah, I, I I will admit that I'm I'm not a traditionalist. I'm I'm looking to get the, sort of next generation guitar sounds. Okay, Craig, big picture here. Where do you see music technology going? Is there a technology that's up and coming that not many people understand or know about? Is there something you see happening, a trend that you see happening right now? Um, yes and no. I mean, I'm. Oh, this would be a great time to plug my thing at NAMM. I'm going to be talking about the future of music uh, and the tech tracks. It's something I did at Summer NAMM, and it went over really well, so they decided to do it at Winter NAMM. Um, but <clears throat> um, I, I do think that there's – I think that artificial learning, artificial intelligence uh, is, going to, is going to be huge. And I, and I mean really huge. It, it may not be next year. It may not be two years from now. 
Uh, you're already starting to see signs of that with things like isotope neutron, which analyzes uh, you know files and says, oh, I, we think you need a little more trouble here or whatever. Um, or the stuff that, I mean, there's, or FryRound, what they're doing with EQs. Uh, so that's just being applied to EQ right now. But I can really see it getting to the point where uh, when you set things up for a mix, you say, okay, give me some mixes. And the machine knows what you like in mixes. It knows how you like to set EQs on guitars. It's learning this stuff as you're going along. That's the whole thing about machine learning. You don't have to give it specific instructions. It just amasses huge amounts of data and makes sense out of it. You know, So you'd be able to, with a, with a true uh, machine learning mixing system, it will have studied your mixes. It will have studied the mixes you like. And you say, okay, give me a mix. And it'll get you like in the ballpark with one button push because it knows what you want. Now you might want to make a few changes after that. Or you might say, you might push the button again and say, hey, give me another one. Um, and it'll say, oh yeah, well, I remember that there were, your, your second favorite, most favorite guitar sound was this. So let's try that instead. You seem to use it on things with slower tempos. And this is 90 BPM, so it's kind of halfway in between, but let's give it a shot. I mean, that's the way that machine learning thinks. And, of course, again, the traditionalists are going to go, oh, well, that's terrible. You know, this is art. This is like you should be able to do what you want. Well, you can always do what you want. You can always turn off autopilot, you know. Yeah. Um, there's no law that says you have to do it, but if it gets you in the ballpark quicker and faster in a more inspired way before your ears get tired, you know, what's wrong with that? And the other thing is that, the whole virtual reality thing, um, you know, it's tried to get traction like multiple times. It's like surround, you know, it never really took off. But I'm seeing more uh, more people in their like 20s who are setting up VR setups the same way that um, people used to set up stereo systems in their house. You know, they'd have their stereo system and their nice turntable and they'd have their big speakers and they would invite their friends over and they would listen to music and and all that. Well, I'm seeing that kind of set up more with VR. And. I think there's some real potential there. Uh, one is for creating experiences that you can't get otherwise. Like, uh, for example, I, I love a lot of the dance parties, you know, uh, what used to be called raves. I, I love those things. I was at one in Ibiza a couple of years ago. And, you know, you're sitting there and there's this fantastic sound system and there's the DJs doing their things. And no, they're not just people in their bedroom pushing buttons. It takes real skill to do that, you know? Yeah. And you're looking at the old castle and there's the night sky above and that's a fantastic experience. But how many people get to experience that? With VR, it doesn't put you there, but it gives you an idea of what makes it so incredibly cool. There was a demo that Sennheiser did at AES where you could be in a club and you could float above the club and move around the club. And you could get behind and see what the DJs were doing and things like that. And I thought that that was, that was really, really very interesting. So, I mean, that, that's, that's still, I mean, who knows where there's going to get traction, but that's still an important thing. I think though that the most important point that's being missed about music these days is um, I have a workshop I do, or I should say a seminar a presentation called High Resolution Audio, So What? And this is in response to when the record industry was saying, oh, we need 24-bit resolution, we need higher sample rates, we need 96K, we need all that stuff. And I'm like, no, that's not what's missing from music. What's missing from music is the social element. Uh, people listen on headphones. People don't go to record stores and paw through albums next to somebody else's pawing through albums. They don't listen to jukeboxes. They don't have stereo systems set up and invite their friends over and things like that. They go to 
they go to iTunes to buy music, which is an incredibly sterile experience. So I think that what's the, if there's going to be a next big thing, it's going to be something that makes music into a more social experience, a more shared experience. And there are ways that, that can happen. There are intimate ways that can happen that are that can bridge that. For example, Skype concerts, I think, is a really interesting concept, but that's still a little bit isolated. But the, I think there are ways, I, I think there will be ways that the technology can actually make you feel like you are in a social situation, even if it's online. Things like what Mozilla is uh, doing with their hubs, uh, that's going to be the future. You know, that's the way people are going to interact. Uh, so th- those are the, those are the main things. Those are the main things that that I that I think are going to make a big difference. Okay, last question, Craig. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you, or maybe you learned along the way? <laughs> That's interesting. I just wrote a Craigslist for Harmony Central. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like it's a really snarky, uh, satirical column, and it was about the courses you should take if you wanted to have success in the music business. And most of them were joke things. Like one of them was child psychology. I said, you're going to be dealing with musicians. But I'll tell you, it's all about marketing these days, more so than it ever was. It's all about marketing. It's all about building a brand. It's all about rising above the noise. Because the fact of the matter is that everybody has access to platforms. There are no filters anymore with like record companies, like uh, Island Records. If you bought an Island Record, if you bought a Wyndham Hill Record, you pretty much knew the kind of thing you were getting. Um, that's just no longer the case. And there's a billion people on Spotify, and there's a billion people on YouTube. And and how do you get above that noise? Well, you got to market yourself, and you have to market yourself better than these other people. And you also have to market yourself against every piece of music that's ever been recorded, which is all available 24-7 to anybody who wants it. So there's no more a market for the next Prince. There's no more a market for the next Springsteen or the next Beatles. They're already there. If you're seven years old and you're playing with YouTube for the first time and find the Beatles, it's new to you. You don't need another Beatles. You know, you don't need another who or whatever. Um, so I think that what separates it is, is solely marketing. And uh, the people who know how to market themselves, whether it was Bowie or Madonna or, you know, whoever, Taylor Swift, I mean, they've had success because of their marketing. Now, they have the music to back it up, which is, you know, you, you can't market things that people don't want. But the problem is that there's a lot of great music out there right now. And unless it's marketed, people aren't going to hear it. Like, I love what's going on with Soka and Zook. There's a lot of fantastic Caribbean music going on. It's danceable. It has electronic tinges. It's got a lot of African influences and synth influences and European influences from the tourists who come there. And it's great stuff. And when I talk to people here, no one's ever heard of it, you know, because yeah. uh, no one's marketing it. But it's it's something I've incorporated into a lot of my music. And people are like, oh, wow, this is really good. It's like, yeah, I, I know who to steal from. You know, it's uh, it's yeah. great stuff. But that's it's these days. It's really all about marketing. That's the only business advice I can give you. You, you got to know how to market. Since I'm talking about marketing, can I plug a couple things? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'd love people. I'd love people to go to youtube.com slash the Craig Anderton because somebody already had Craig Anderton. So you go to slash the Craig Anderton. That's where I put most of my music these days. My last album, Simplicity, that was my 2017 project. You can buy that from CD Baby. My project for 2018 is called uh, Joie de Vivre, and that's reinventing dance music. 
Um, my project for 2016 is, is still on YouTube. It's called Neo, which is short for Neo Psychedelic Music for the 21st Century. And the premise behind that was what if psychedelic music had never in, in, existed and someone invented it today? What would it sound like? Simplicity was an entirely different thing. Lots of acoustic instruments, vocals up front, short albums, short songs, two minute, 30 second songs, almost like a throwback to like a, almost like a Buddy Holly type of mentality. And Joie de Vivre throws all this stuff together into like a danceable rock thing. So that's where to get the, um, that's where to get the music. And then there's also craiganderton.com, the website, which has news and products and things like that. Uh, you can find my stuff on Reverb at Reverb.com to search on Craig Anderton. You can find sample libraries, which I've also done, and the books I mentioned and things like that. So those are the three main places. I do have a Twitter account, at Craig underscore Anderton. That's where the news comes out. And those are pretty much my uh, my hypeful things to market my brand. <laughs> we got it all. You can find out more about Craig at CraigAnderton.com. It's all one word, Craig Anderton. Com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.